This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Ah, and it's good to see you all on this Memorial Day Sunday. You know, before we get started, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask God just to, to teach us. Ah, oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you are, you are here you are among us. You are covering this place. You have filled this place, Lord. I just ask that you would unite us under your direction, under your word, and Lord, that you would uh, encourage us this morning with your truth. Father, I think of that song we sang, Be Still My Soul. You know, I, I have to ask you, Still My Soul song, because I've, yeah, my soul's a little jumpy right now. Lord, wow, may you just shine through May you shine through. Thank you. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. <clears throat> hey, this morning we're going to look at this uh, topic called the resilience of hope. And so I'd ask you to take your Bibles and open to set the, the book of 1 Peter. And I should probably just say, you know, Aaron said I'm going to welcome Pastor Dan up here. My name is Dan Elliott. I'm an associate pastor here. As you can tell, uh, our lead pastor, Ryan, is, is getting a very needed break um, He's amazing how much he, he preaches, and he loves preaching, and it just kind of energizes him, but we all said, you need a break, so take some time off. Um, but we're going to be looking at this uh, subject of hope as it comes in First Peter, and you know, I've got to tell you that this is one of my favorite times of the year. I love Memorial Day, and I probably love it for all the wrong reasons. I love it because it's the beginning of summertime. It kind of kicks it off. I love it because we start to have some barbecues. I love it because it's just a change of pace from a, from a long winter and a long fall. Um, I like Memorial Day. But I have to realize Memorial Day, what it really is, it's a day to remember. It's a day um, to go back and, and remember our lost loved ones, to remember those who have sacrificed their life for our country, to remember those who have gone before us. And sometimes that brings up some tough memories, some hard times. Um, Carrie and I had a, a little bit of a, an introduction to that this Monday, this past Monday when um, we started the day out, we were rushing around getting ready for work and whatever was coming, and, and all of a sudden we got, a, we got an email with an urgent prayer request asking us to pray for our, our nephew, Patrick. Patrick was part of a Marine deployment uh, from Pendleton, and uh, they were in Hawaii someplace going through some training. And we got this uh, email that said there had been this accident, a helicopter accident, in which there were 22 Marines on a helicopter. Two of them died. 20 were injured. And um, our sister-in-law was saying, I, I have no idea where Patrick is. And so I'd ask you to be praying for him. And that started a, a 36-hour kind of a vigil, a journey in which we didn't hear anything. And we should have realized, probably after about 12 hours, having not heard something, that was probably good. But it just kept eating away at us. We were very anxious. Uh, we were worried. We wondered about Patrick. And finally, a day and a half later, we finally got the word from Patrick's wife that she had finally uh, heard that Patrick had not been on the helicopter. In fact, he was actually at a different part of the island training for something unique uh, from what his other teammates were training for. But that hit us with, um, how do we approach adversity? How do, how do we deal with challenging situations in our life, even tragic situations? And we're going to take a look at this book of 1 Peter this morning in chapter 3. And 1 Peter was written to folks who were facing tragic situations, challenging situations because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, it was sometime around 62 to 64 AD. Now, not all of them were taken to the Colosseum and put on the, on the floor, but I have a feeling that many of them knew folks who, through persecution, had realized that their lives had been taken from them. I have a feeling that many of them lived in that, in that fear of wondering, boy, what's tomorrow going to bring? Because Christianity was seen as a divisive cult. Uh, it was seen as a blasphemous theology. And it, it became a scapegoat for a pretty corrupt government at that time in the Roman Empire. And much uh, persecution was directed against Christian believers. Many times they were sacrificed for the lust of the powers around them. And yet 1 Peter begins 
with a very amazing verse as Peter writes to these folks facing persecution. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again. It's by his great, amazing mercy that God has given us new life. And he's saying this to people that don't know if they're going to be facing death the next day. But he's encouraging them, saying, we have new life because of his mercy, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And some of your versions, this is, I'm I'm going to be using something called the New Living Translation. I always throw us off when I do that, but I like this translation. Um, And I just love the flow of it. But we live with great expectation. Some of your versions will say, we have a living hope now because of the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And it changes the perspective of how we look at life. How we look at life. Um, I'm going to ask you to, to read with me the verses we're going to be looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's just read them together in unison as they appear on the screen. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. You know, just stop. Pay them back with a blessing. Wow. Just wanted you to think about that. Verse 10. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. You know, hopefully by the end of this little time together, we'll get to that point. Um, If someone asks you about the hope that you have as a believer, I, I would hope that our lives are so attractive that people around us would want to know what's different. So, so what's different with the way we function in this world in contrast to the way many in the world are already functioning? How do we stand out? And I believe that First Peter has some very uh, distinct helps for us as we face adversity. You know, this word resilience, and, uh, and the title, The Resilience of Hope, the word resilience, um, it's really a study that has grown in universities uh, since about the 80s and 90s. Uh, They have departments of resilience. I never knew that. Um, But this term resilience uh, deals with the ability to overcome adversity and why some people um, can approach adversity and they can thrive or they can cope and other people just struggle and trying to find one of those characteristics. Um, One of the things, I was reading an article and it gave five... Five basic, um, five basic ways that human beings cope or human beings react to adversity. And I shouldn't say they're coping when they're doing that, but this is the natural human tendency when we are faced with adversity or when a tragic situation comes into our life. Or I even saw it beginning in me on Monday and Tuesday as I was wrestling with Patrick's uh, whereabouts. The first is isolation. We withdraw. We, we want to get away from that pain that, that seems to be attacking us. We withdraw. Um, but sometimes in our withdrawal, we just kind of focus in upon it again. Uh, I found myself um, getting on the computer and trying to find everything I could find about this accident that took place over in Hawaii. I was just uh, on an overload. I, I remember years ago when Carrie was diagnosed with cancer the first time. Yeah. Um, and we got the word from the doctor. We were both sitting there in the doctor's office. He came out from his, his office and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but 
really looks like cancer. We went out, we got in our car, we looked at each other and said, let's just get out of here. And we just started driving. And we drove, and we drove, and I hoped we could get lost, but we, we couldn't. Um, but we just drove and drove. We wanted to get away. We wanted to isolate ourselves. And that's one of those common tendencies, reactions we have. And, and as we isolate ourselves, the, the second aspect that oftentimes comes up, we, we get irritation. We're irritability. Um, we find ourselves snapping at people around us because the pressures that are on us, sometimes it's because of lack of sleep, sometimes it's just because of the worry, the anxiety that keeps creeping into us, but we become irritable. I, I can't even remember what the issue was, but two weeks ago, I can sure remember my irritability. And uh, for some reason, I just had a rotten sleep. That's, that's not uncommon for me. But uh, this night, it was extreme on, you know, uh, lack of sleep. And I was just uh, so anxious about something. And when we got up in the morning, my goodness, Carrie could sense that she better not tramp in my way. I was irritable about, about everything that happened. And that night, when we got back together, I apologized to her. And she said, you know, I could tell. I knew that wasn't your natural course. But I didn't know what was going on. And, and that's oftentimes the way we react to, to circumstances of adversity that come into our life. We get irritable. We start barking at people around us. And then because we start barking at people around us, we become almost paralyzed. We, we, we fall into inaction. It's hard for us to make decisions. We're afraid of how we're going to react to somebody around us. And we, we, we continue to pull back. And uh, that inaction leads to fear. That fear leads to hopelessness. This is what this guy wrote in this paper, that these five steps are, are the five common reactions that happen in human nature. But I want to tell you that First Peter, writing to people who were experiencing hardship, called them to something far greater. And I think, I know he calls us to that also today. Um, regardless of what tragedy or what adversity or what hardship we may be facing. Um, this morning, I just want to kind of share some of those points with you from First Peter, and I also hope to be able to share some, um, some stories of some people who have been resilient in the face of adversity. Um, instead of isolation, Peter says, come together. Come together, stay together. Verse 8, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Uh, that, that is translated in some versions, all of you should live in harmony together. You should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, keep a humble attitude, come together, stay together. The natural tendency is for us to pull apart, to kind of say, I don't want to be around other people at this time, but we need to come together, especially at those times. I told you this uh, whole study of resilience has been uh, becoming a, almost departments in different universities. And uh, one of those down in the University of Houston is headed up by a, a, an author, a pretty popular author right now, whose name is Brene Brown. She's a research professor, and she deals with the subjects of resiliency. And she's done a lot of case studies, hundreds and hundreds of case studies, of people who have been resilient in the face of challenge. And as she's compiled all of her data, she's come up with five basic general characteristics of resilient people. And I was interested to find that three of these five go right along with staying together. Um, the first one, the number one characteristic which she found was resilient people are more likely to go to others for help they're more likely to realize, I need someone else to talk to. I need to just bear my soul during this time. And, and so they go to others for help. Um, I think it was the, the fourth characteristic of resilient people is that they have social support that's available to them. In other words, they have allowed themselves to become part of a, of a system of people where there's, where there's support and where they can go for help. And the fifth one was they are connected with others. It sounds very similar to that fourth one, but they're connected with others, and that connection is integral with family and friends. And I think of how Peter is talking about that integral connection that we need to come together, especially during times that are tragic, that are challenging to us. Um, she goes on to say that she discovered one foundational principle in every resilient case study that she studied. And that to me is pretty amazing. Of the hundreds that she studied, there was one foundational principle. 
Now realize she's writing for an academic crowd. So she's not trying to make any brownie points for religious people. But um, she came up and said, that one point is spirituality. I found that resilient people, there's something about their spirit within them. There's something about their spirit. And she came up with this definition for spirituality. Remember, she's not saying that it's religious people. She's not saying that it's people who go to church, although she said the majority of the resilient folks did go to church. But that wasn't what she was trying to define. She came up with this definition. Spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us, and that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Boy, I see that, and I see her doing these studies, and I kind of wonder, my goodness, it almost sounds like our DNA has that connection built right into it. And those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice and resurrection for us, and those of us who know the mercy of God, just take that word greater power and we put God right in there front and center. And, and I go to 1 Corinthians and I see this illustrated uh, in this verse that Paul puts in. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. We're all interconnected. So it's with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share that same spirit. We are all different and unique as we sit here this morning. Every one of us has had different experiences. But because of Jesus Christ, we are all interconnected into his body. And we need each other. And the next few verses that Paul goes on in here, he says that. He says we need each other. Um, we need to protect the weaker ones as well as give voice for the stronger ones. We need to see all the gifts exemplified. And he says the reason is this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part's honored, well, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Okay, this interconnectedness, it's important here at South. We need it. It's so easy for us just to go after a Sunday morning, go home, couch ourselves in our houses and, and not interconnect with each other. And I would just uh, encourage you. That's, that's why we talk about life groups so much around here. We encourage folks to get together in small groups, to be able to discuss their faith, to be able to challenge each other and grow each other. We're coming into the summer Again, I said it's a different time. You know, a lot of life groups are taking some time off. A lot of life groups are, instead of meeting every other week or every week, they're going to go to a monthly concert, something like that. And so we're also having some things we call meetups. Meetups. And meetups are just a time where you can get together with some other folks from this church and do something crazy together. Go climb a 14 or go, go for walks. Uh, take a bike hike. Um, on, our, on our website, you'll find a whole list of meetups. And I'd encourage you, back by the uh, Welcome Center, uh, Heather Pipple is going to be back there. And she's going to be sharing some more about meetups. I would love it if some of you had an idea of, of something you'd like to invite other people to join you in this summer. I'd love it if you take a look at that and say, yeah, I want to be part of that meetup. You can sign up this morning. We need interconnection. We need to stay together, especially in times that are challenging. Isolation. Let's stay together. Irritation. Let's speak a blessing. This is a little bit harder. A little bit harder to, to speak a blessing. Uh, verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when, when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing as you pay them back with a blessing. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I see that blessing and evil. Blessing and insults. You know, it reminds me of another phrase that we see in Scripture. Blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. James talks about that and talks about our tongue. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, fish. But no one seems to be able to tame the tongue. Isn't that exciting? It's restless, it's evil, it's full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Blessing, cursing. And I would propose to you that blessing and cursing are not just opposites. 
Blessing and cursings are kind of the way we approach the people around us. I'm not sure that there's a happy medium ground. Um, the next verse, and so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, that's not right. John Ortberg wrote a book called Soul Keeping. And in it, he, he deals with his blessings and cursings. Blessing and cursing are not compartmentalized Bible words at all. In other words, they're not just these opposites that are in their separate compartments. No, they are simply two ways that we treat people. And they're as inescapable as breathing out and breathing in. And we have a choice of what we will do. This past week, it's one of the dangers when you're preaching a sermon. Um, God brings illustrations into your life. And this past week, of all times, Wednesday, I was over at South Glen Library. I was doing some studying, actually, on blessing and cursing. And I was looking for some books. Um, I had to run over here to the office, so I came out the backside of South Glen, came down there to where it runs into Arapahoe Road. There's a light. And I'm sitting there at the light, waiting for it to turn green. And all of a sudden, I noticed... On the other way, on Arapahoe, up came a police car, and he stopped because the light had turned yellow. And I thought, okay, I better be on my toes. So I hit my little blinker, and I was going to watch the speedometer. Um, it turned green. I went out smoothly. I watched my speed. Great. Everything was going fine. I wasn't even looking in the rearview mirror until I got about you know, halfway down, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and here's these red lights flashing behind me. And I was going, what in the world did I do? So I, I just kind of moved over into the other lane, thinking that he wanted to get by me. Well, he moved over in the other lane. <laughs> so I gave up. I went over into the shoulder. He came in behind me. I rolled the window down. He came up to the window, and I said, Officer, what in the world did I do? And he said, Well, uh, you made a left-hand turn out there onto Arapahoe, and instead of going into lane number one, you went into lane number two. And I said... Lane number two, I didn't even know that was a law. And then he said, and furthermore, I noticed you didn't have your seatbelt on. And I realized, oh, yeah, it's just like you're saying, oh, I got caught with a seatbelt rule. And I looked at it, and I just kind of quickly grabbed the seatbelt and pulled it over and snapped it. <laughs> and then I had that wonderful chance to just sit in the car while he took my license and registration, went back into his, his vehicle, and he was tracing everything. And you know what it's like when you're on Arapahoe Road, and uh, all these cars are going by, and you've got a car behind you with its lights flashing like that. Every, you think everybody in the world is seeing you. Um, anyway, I'm sitting there. Uh, blessings were not going through my mind. <laughs> and, and yet, all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my goodness. Blessings or cursing? Blessing or cursing? I think I've got a choice here. And I watched as the policeman got out of his car, came back to the door, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, God, maybe because I'm thinking about blessing, you might give me a break here. Um, <laughs> he didn't. Uh, he handed me the ticket and said, uh, Mr. Elliott, uh, the fine is blah, blah, blah. I won't say what it was, but it's a very expensive lesson. And um, he's saying, you can either mail that in or go to court on such and such a day. And uh, I'm sitting there going, oh. And finally, I said, well, well, officer, and I looked at him, I said, you know, thank you for doing your job, and um, thanks for helping to keep me safe from myself. <laughs> I expected him to smile. He didn't. Nothing changed. He just left. And um, I didn't even hear any heavenly music. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, as I rolled the window back up, as I drove the rest of the way to church, there was something that began to happen, and I realized, you know, I... I don't know how that's going to affect that guy, but I did, I did share a blessing with him. And God, that feels kind of good because everything in me wanted to do something else. Mm. You know, that's, a, that's kind of a, not trite, but that's kind of a different kind of an example. I want to share something that's a little bit, a little bit more intense. Um, Karen and I both come from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, a little over, maybe about eight years ago, there was a horrendous crime that took place. The uh, shootings that took place in an Amish schoolhouse. A man by the name of Charlie Roberts, uh, who was actually a neighbor of many of these Amish people, went into the schoolhouse and he dismissed the boys, 13 of the boys, but he had the girls line up against the blackboard and he shot every one. Five of those girls died. 
read a book recently by his wife, Marie. Charlie also killed himself that day, so he, so he was gone. And his wife, Marie, was left with the, uh, the pain trying to deal with this situation. Um, she tried to keep her family isolated, away from the press. And, uh, yeah, you know, she went because uh, she had to take care of her husband's funeral. So she talked to the funeral director. They decided that they would allow the Amish, you know, the dignity of having their burials first. And so many of the papers, um, let's see now. Yeah, many of the papers showed um, the Amish as they were lining up for their funerals. And then came the day when she would bury her husband. She went to the little church where they had the service. And then she and her family were driving in a couple cars behind the hearse going to the cemetery. And uh, when she turned to come into the cemetery, she was horrified because she saw on the right-hand side there was a line of police, and behind that barricade there was just an army of reporters and cameras. And she thought, oh, no, how can I shield my children from becoming the picture on the headline news? This is what she recounts happened at that time. While we were still on the driveway, before we even pulled into that little parking lot, a movement caught my eye ahead on the left behind the corner of, uh, of the garage. I spotted the rim of a black hat, clearly Amish. He'd been hidden behind the garage, undoubtedly to avoid being within view of the cameras. The Amish man looked directly at our procession for a second or two. Then he stepped out from behind the garage and moved slowly in our direction. He was followed by another, and then another, and then a woman, her long black cape flapping in the wind, her black bonnet shielding her face. One after another, the line of Amish men and women grew to about three dozen walking in our direction. The hearse moved forward to the grave site, but our car behind the hearse had to stop and waited. I watched, unbelieving, tears streaming down my face as that line of Amish formed a crescent wall in front of us, hiding the grave site from our view and from the view of the reporters and the photographers. Our car began to inch forward again, and as it did, the wall of Amish parted in the middle, allowing my car and the car with my children and parents to pass through. The moment our cars were inside the crescent, those good people closed the gap behind us. They were shielding us. The Amish were shielding the family of Charlie Roberts. The cameras of the world could see only one thing, the backs of the Amish people. And from inside the crescent, I could see only one thing, faces of grace. We were shielded by love, by sacrifice, by unmerited favor. God was protecting my family with a wall of grace. I stepped out of the car, joined hands with my children, and walked the few dozen steps past gravestones, old and new. As I looked through my tears at the fresh-turned earth, I thought about the five other funerals that had taken place that week. The Miller family had buried two daughters. The Ebersols, the Fishers, the Stoltzfus families had each buried a daughter as well. Their worlds were broken, turned upside down like the dirt lying before me. Treasures lost, now buried. Hopes ended, dreams destroyed. Yet poured into those chasms of loss was not bitterness nor anger, not hatred, not revenge, but love poured out to overflowing. As we were greeting each other around the gravesite, my mother approached with a lovely Amish woman. Marie, she said, this is Mrs. Miller, the mother of two daughters lost that day. I was standing face to face with the mother of Lena, age seven, and Mary, age eight, who had died at Charlie's hand. I was amazed. One of the families who lost daughters at the schoolhouse had come. Oh, I'm so sorry, I choked out as we stepped into one another's arms, weeping freely. Oh, and I'm so sorry for your loss as well, she said. She moved back to include the man standing behind her. This is my husband. Then one by one, every Amish family greeted me with words of comfort and compassion. And to my utter disbelief, all the parents of the girls lost at the schoolhouse had come to grieve with me to be certain that I knew I was not alone. I've never been so emptied. I've never been so filled. Mm. 
Not returning evil for evil. Not returning insult for insult. But, but giving a blessing. And, and that story of their grace became the main headlines of an incident of violence. And it became known around the world. And this lady's life was changed and transformed because of that. Now, when I say something like this, you know, sometimes we can be trite with what forgiveness is. We can be trite with what blessing is. Um, you know, forgiveness is not easy. And what these Amish people did was not easy. And, I'd, and I'm sure they never forgot simply because they forgave. No, I, I, I have a feeling every day, every week, they remember those dear little ones that passed but they still stepped out in obedience to God to forgive and embrace. Forgiveness does not cause us to forget, but it does help us see things through a, a whole new perspective, through the perspective of God's love and sovereignty. And these Amish folks embrace that as they embrace Marie that day and many weeks after that. We're not to isolate ourselves. We're not to be irritable. And we're not to fall into inaction. Instead of inaction, we're to, we're to search for peace. We're to be active, looking for peace. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. You know, just the way this has worked, search for peace. It doesn't sound like it's an automatic thing. We live in a world that's, that's broken. We live in a world where we see a lot of evil. And to search for peace among that is work. But God calls us to that work, which brings meaning and, and hope in our lives and resiliency. I know yesterday we went into, we went into Starbucks and while I was in Starbucks, I'm, I'm just kind of glancing down at the, the New York Times, and I saw this picture. It was a pretty stark picture. It was, a, it was about a, an uprising that was happening in the country of Burundi. And a lady came by, and she started looking at the picture, and I said to her, boy, things don't look good over there. And she agreed with me. And, and then she said these words, you know, there's everything inside of me that wants to read that article. But there's a lot inside of me that says, stay away. Not another story like that. We get bombarded every day with stories of tragedy. And God tells us in the midst of evil, we are to do good. In the midst of evil, we are to seek peace, search for peace. Um, one of the verses that just astounds me, and it's, and it's a very popular verse. Uh, it comes from a context there in Jeremiah chapter 29 where, where we've got that verse about, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for a future and for a hope. But the verses right before that says this, Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives who's exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. You know, it's easy to read those and say, wow, he's giving them a future, a hope. But don't forget that, that first verse. He's talking to folks who are slaves, who are captives, who are exiles. He's talking to folks who have just seen their homes burned, who have been shackled, who have been taken by armies to a foreign land. And God is saying, okay, when you get to that foreign land, I want you to build homes. I want you to settle down. And then he adds, multiply, don't dwindle, and work for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon where I sent you into exile. I wonder if we could submit to God and relax in his power like that. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Came across a little story that I, I want to play for you now of a, of a person uh, who's in a totality, who, who, who is in a country, Czechoslovakia. Uh, and I didn't realize this about Czechoslovakia, but it's actually a place that is known as the most atheistic country in Europe. Many of her Christian brothers and sisters left the country earlier, but she has remained. She's found a purpose in her older years. Uh, let's watch this, um, this little story about Ludmilia.
In my lifetime, I have experienced the rule of two totalitarian regimes. One was the German Nazis, and the second was the Russian Communists. The Word of God says 366 times, do not be afraid, do not fear. So we weren't afraid. After 40 years of communism here, the fact that many believers left the country, the Czech Republic has been called the most atheist place in Europe. It breaks my heart. My name is Ludmila Harerova. I'm 82 years old. I have seven grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. My husband went to heaven in 2002. The Lord Jesus told me, now he is my husband, and he wants to continue to use me. He wants me to be his representative, his ambassador. Next to the door of my house, there is a bronze sign that says, the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. My home is an extension of Christ's kingdom. It's a place where people can come and look for help if they're in trouble or have a need. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is the atmosphere I want here at the embassy. visitors that I get, some of them have called ahead to let me know they're coming, and some just come. The ones that haven't called are usually the best ones, because I'm not prepared for them. Everything that happens is dependent on the Lord. Today, a dear friend came by. She's a widow, and her family really are struggling financially. Whenever people enter this house, I just lay everything else aside and spend time with them. I have learned to recognize the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and give him room to use me. The Holy Spirit likes to take control. Often I listen to myself and I'll say things I wouldn't even think about. There is no problem to deal with the issues people bring when they come here because the Holy Spirit is here. It's an honor for me to be an instrument of God's love and his wisdom every day. We often don't realize that all believers are called to be representatives of the kingdom of heaven. We are all ambassadors. The Lord Jesus didn't choose to do it any other way. He simply entrusted us. You know, there's so much about that that I love. Uh, we're all called to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. Here she is, 82 years old. Here she is living under two totalitarian regimes, and yet she takes God's call in her life to be active in the lives of other people around her. And we have that same calling. Not to be paralyzed by fear in our world, but to step in with the love that God has given us for the people around us. Um, and you heard her say that um, 366 times in the word it says, do not fear. And I love her statement. So we didn't. 
instead of fear, we need to stop fearing evil, Peter says in verses 13 and 14. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what's right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. This is one of those times that I kind of like the NIV a little bit better than the New Living, and I'm going to show you what the NIV says. Um, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And then quote, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Do not fear what they fear. Um, When we think of what it was that really was their one big card that the, that the world surrounding those believers back when, first Peter, was, when Peter was writing his letter. Uh, it, was, it was this fear of death. And, and so in their persecutions, they killed many of the Christians. But, you know, many of the Christians were able to put their hope in a God who had conquered death already. And so in the face of death, they didn't fear death. And so they had a victory beyond. Um, boy, this is... This is a hard thing for us to comprehend. But Peter challenges us today. Do not fear what the world around you fears. Peter's writing from the vantage point where he saw Jesus Christ um, crucified and tortured, and he saw him buried in a tomb, and then he saw him rise victorious over death, and he conquered death. And so he can share with these people and with us today that command, do not fear what they fear. On Tuesday night when the elders met, um, we had a great time just kind of looking at John chapter 10. And uh, in John chapter 10, um, in John chapter 10, there was this part that, that jumped out at me where Jesus is talking about him being the good shepherd. And he said, after he, the good shepherd, has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. So you have this picture of we as a sheep following Jesus out from the fold. And then a few verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. But but implicit in that story is he, as our good shepherd, goes first and faces the wolf with us. And when Peter is calling us not to fear, he's calling us to realize and picture that Jesus is facing the adversity right alongside of us. And Jesus has already conquered that adversity. Another story I just want to share with you briefly is a story about a a gal named Cheryl McGinnis. Um, Cheryl is a widow. Her husband uh, was a co-pilot at American Airlines number 11. On that day, 9-11, that was the first plane that was driven into the Twin Towers. Um, She had no messages. There was no recordings from that flight to know what took place. And in the months that ensued, she wrestled and wrestled with God. And one thing she could not get through was just this evil that took place. And she was angered every time she thought about that. She made steps in many directions, but she just couldn't get over uh, her, her hatred for those hijackers. A few months later, she was able to join some of the other um, folks who who had lost loved ones at Ground Zero. And um, as they came to Ground Zero, this was the first time she had seen the devastation. And she writes this. That day, standing on the platform at Ground Zero, my emotions were overwhelmed. I was speechless. How could words adequately describe the magnitude of the destruction that had been rendered upon so many by the actions of a few. Oh, this place is the result of evil. I thought, terrible, evil. The events of that day are not just simply a crime against the United States. No, it was a crime against all humanity, representing the worst that mankind has to offer. I looked down into that dull gray pit where traces of the cleanup were still visible and piles of cement and rubble and wires sticking out of the ground. Light, intermittent breezes ruffled the dirt and stirred up little swirls of dust. The sound of the city buzzed in the background, but the edges of the pit screamed with the silence of devastation. And as I looked from one side of the massive expanse to the other, my eyes fixed on the only steel structure left standing, the shape of a cross. I kept turning my head back and forth, first to the pit, then to the cross, then to the pit, then to the cross, and then I 
I stopped looking at the pit and I stayed focused on the cross. How can you forgive what man has done? I cried out in my heart to God. How can you forgive this evil devastation and destruction? And then suddenly I felt as if I were at the base of the cross of Christ, on my knees in the dust guilty of my own offenses against God and others, with God's voice speaking to me, I forgive you, Cheryl. Oh, God knows the full extent of the evil committed on 9-11, I thought, because that evil was done to him as well. I pictured Jesus hanging on the cross, nails piercing his hands, feet, a crown of thorns on his head. The rebellion of man put him there. Not only the men involved in the hijackings, but all of us. I put him there. And at that moment... I was filled with such gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross, for the reality that because of his sacrifice, Tom and I will one day be reunited in heaven, and I determined to spend the rest of my days serving that God. I realized that part of that service would involve telling others how good God is and how much he loves me, how he gives us what we need and restores our brokenness, how in the midst of the inevitable pain of life, he supernaturally comes into our hearts and heals. At that moment, I realized I needed to forgive the evil of 9-11 and the personal pain it caused me. I had to make a choice to hold on to hatred and fear or to forgive and live. To focus on the pit of evil and destruction or to focus on the cross of Christ. I chose to forgive. The more I considered this idea of forgiveness, the more confident I became that in Christ I would be able to forgive what seemed to be unforgivable. I realized that we all choose what we dwell on, and what we dwell on determines in large measure our attitudes. I knew that if I dwelt on anger, I'd become resentful. If I stayed resentful, I'd become bitter. If I stayed bitter, my heart would never fully heal, and I wanted my heart to be healed. Hmm. We have those choices to to come together and stay together. We have that choice to speak a blessing to people instead of evil. We have that choice to search for peace in the midst of an evil, broken world. We have the choice not to submit to fear, but to submit to our Lord and God. And instead of hopelessness, we have the choice to worship Jesus as Lord. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. I look at this story of Cheryl McGinnis and how she returned to the cross of Jesus Christ right there in that rubble. I have one more story I want to share with you. And then we'll bring this to a close. This story took place not far from from us down in Colorado Springs. At New Life Church, we remember the shootings that took place. Guys, would you start this? New Life Church is a church that has gone through a tremendous amount of pain. In November of 2006, the founding pastor resigned amid a scandal that devastated thousands of people. Fast forward uh, 13 months later, I'd been a senior pastor at New Life Church for 100 days, and a gunman came on our campus, a young man came on our campus with about a thousand rounds of ammunition, an AR-15 assault rifle, and some handguns, smoke grenades, with the ammunition strapped to him. He opened fire in front of a van where David and Marie works, and their four girls were loading into the van to go to lunch. He shot through the front windshield, and when he did, the two girls, Rachel and Stephanie, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old, died almost instantly from the gunshot wounds. What we know is that a gunman opened fire here in the parking lot at New Life Church. Several teams continue to investigate. The fire trucks, the ambulances came. As far as we know, not everything is is stable there yet. They're still um, looking uh, around for maybe even possibly another gunman. Police have not released any information about the suspect or the person who died can't even describe how terrible it was to have people murdered on your church campus after a worship service. And it just seemed like on that Sunday that we were done. I mean, it was just a feeling among us that this was the final blow, the final knell in the coffin. So we decided we don't typically have church on Wednesday night, but we did this week. We called a family meeting. And it's at that meeting where 
the strength of our church came out. The strength of our people was revealed. At the end of the gathering, our worship pastor stood on sang a song that was written during the first pain, the scandal. And it was a song called Everyone Overcome. And when that song began to be played, uh, literally the roof of the building I thought was going to come off. It was the most spectacular encounter with God that I've ever had with a group of people. It was, it was something in the air, like the way I've described it is like a holy defiance, um, a, a, a determination in, our, in us that we were not going to give up our church, that we were not going to let our church be taken from us by some force of evil. And we, our hearts were welded together that night. And uh, now, even now, when we sing that song, uh, memories are flooded into all of our hearts. You know, we just are all reminded that God is with us and is near us and is far us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Church is thriving today because they chose to worship instead of to withdraw. They chose to come to the, the foot of the cross together. And they chose to seek peace in the community where they lived rather than react with evil and with insult. They passed blessing on. You know, there's a lot to, to absorb. I'd encourage you to go back and read those verses, but just realize God calls us to a whole different life because of Jesus Christ. It takes me back to the, what he started out there, Peter's purpose, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have new life because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Now we live with hope. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. You are the God of all hope. You are the God of changed lives. You are the God who brings transformation. Lord, I ask that you would draw us together stronger and stronger. Father, I ask that you would allow us to be instruments of your blessing. Help us not to react in our natural tendencies, but Lord, to bring ministry of healing. Oh, Father, may we seek the peace of this community. May we be your hands and feet to minister your truth and love. May we not succumb to fear and inaction, but Lord, may we worship you and you alone. For you alone deserve to be worshipped. We love you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.